Chapter Two of The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Occasionally during the following month, I dropped in at 117 Wall Street to inquire how the repairing and refurnishing of the vessel was coming on, how additions to the passenger list were averaging, how many people the committee were decreeing not select every day, and banishing in sorrow and tribulation. I was glad to know that we were to have a little printing press on board and issue a daily newspaper of our own. I was glad to learn that our piano, our parlor organ, and our melodeon were to be the best instruments of the kind that could be had in the market. I was proud to observe that among our excursionists were three ministers of the gospel, eight doctors, sixteen or eighteen ladies, several military and naval chieftains, with sounding titles, an ample crop of professors of various kinds, and a gentleman who had Commissioner of the United States of America to Europe, Asia, and Africa, thundering after his name in one awful blast. I had carefully prepared myself to take rather a back seat in that ship because of the uncommonly select material that would alone be permitted to pass through the camel's eye of that committee on credentials. I had schooled myself to expect an imposing array of military and naval heroes, and to have to set that back seat still further back in consequence of it, maybe, but I state frankly that I was all unprepared for this crusher. I fell under that titular avalanche, a torn and blighted thing. I said that if that potentate must go over in our ship, why, I supposed he must, but that to my thinking when the United States considered it necessary to send a dignitary of that tonnage across the ocean, it would be in better taste and safer to take him apart and cart him over in sections and several ships. Ah, if I had only known that he was only a common mortal and that his mission had nothing more overpowering about it than the collecting of seeds and uncommon yams and extraordinary cabbages and peculiar bullfrogs for that poor, useless, innocent, mildewed old fossil, the Smithsonian Institute, I would have felt so much relieved. During that memorable month I basked in the happiness of being for once in my life drifting with the tide of a great popular movement. Everybody was going to Europe. I, too, was going to Europe. Everybody was going to the famous Paris Exposition. I, too, was going to the Paris Exposition. The steamship lines were carrying Americans out of the various ports of the country at the rate of four or five thousand a week in the aggregate. If I met a dozen individuals during that month who were not going to Europe shortly, I have no distinct remembrance of it now. I walked about the city a good deal with a young Mr. Blucher who was booked for the excursion. He was confiding, good-natured, unsophisticated, companionable. But he was not a man to set the river on fire. He had the most extraordinary notions about this European exodus and 
came at last to consider the whole nation as packing up for emigration to France. We stepped into a store on Broadway one day where he bought a handkerchief, and when the man could not make change, Mr. B. said, Never mind, I'll hand it to you in Paris. But I'm not going to Paris. How is, what, what, I, what did I understand you to say? I said, I'm not going to Paris. Not going to Paris? Not, well then, where in the nation are you going to? Nowhere at all. Not anywhere whatsoever, not any place on earth but this. Not any place at all, but just this. Stay here all summer. My comrade took his purchase and walked out of the store without a word, walked out with an injured look upon his countenance. Up the street apiece he broke silence and said impressively, It was a lie. That is my opinion of it. In the fullness of time the ship was ready to receive her passengers. I was introduced to the young gentleman who was to be my roommate, and found him to be intelligent, cheerful of spirit, unselfish, full of generous impulses, patient, considerate, and wonderfully good-natured. Not any passenger that sailed in the Quaker City will withhold his endorsement of what I just said. We selected a stateroom forward of the wheel on the starboard side, below decks. It had two berths in it, a dismal dead light, a sink with a washbowl in it, and a long, sumptuously cushioned locker, which was to do service as a sofa and partly, and partly as a hiding place for our things. Notwithstanding all this furniture, there was still room to turn around in but not to swing a cat in, at least not with entire security to, to the cat. However, the room was large for a ship's stateroom, and was in every way satisfactory. The vessel was appointed to sail on a certain Saturday, early in June. A little afternoon on that distinguished Saturday, I reached the ship and went on board. All was bustle and confusion. I've seen that remark somewhere before. The pier was crowded with carriages and men. Passengers were arriving and hurrying on board. The vessel's decks were encumbered with trunks and valises. Groups of excursionists, arrayed in unattractive traveling costumes, were moping about in the drizzling rain and looking as droopy and woebegone as so many molting chickens. The gallant flag was up, but it was under the spell, too, and hung limp and disheartened by the mast. Altogether, it was the bluest, bluest spectacle. It was a pleasure excursion. There was no gainsaying that, because the program said so. It was so nominated in the bond, but it surely hadn't the general aspect of one. Finally, above the banging and rumbling and shouting and hissing of the steam rang the order to cast off. A sudden rush to the gangways, a scampering ashore of visitors, a revolution of the wheels, and we were off. The picnic was begun. Two very mild cheers went up from the dripping crowd on the pier. We answered them gently from the slippery decks. The flag made an effort to wave and failed. The battery of guns spake not. The ammunition was out. 
We steamed down to the foot of the harbor and came to anchor. It was still raining, and not only raining, but storming. Outside we could see ourselves that there was a tremendous sea on. We must lie still in the calm harbor till the storm should abate. Our passengers hailed from fifteen states. Only a few of them had ever been to sea before. Manifestly, it would not do to pit them against a full-blown tempest until they had got their sea legs on. Toward evening, the two steam tugs that had accompanied us with a rollicking champagne party of young New Yorkers on board who wished to bid farewell to one of our number in due and ancient form departed and were alone on the deep. On deep five fathoms and anchored fast to the bottom, and out in the solemn rain at that, this was pleasuring with a vengeance. It was an appropriate relief when the gong sounded for prayer meeting. The first Saturday night of other pleasure excursions might have been devoted to whist and dancing, but I submit it to an unprejudiced mind if it would have been in good taste for us to engage in such frivolities, considering what we had gone through in the frame of mind we were in. We would have shone at a wake, but not at anything more festive. However, there is always a cheering influence about the sea, and in my berth that night, rocked by the measured swell of the waves and lulled by the murmur of the distant surf, I soon passed tranquilly out of all consciousness of the dreary experiences of the day and damaging premonitions of the future. End of chapter 2 Recording by B. Scott Holmes, bscotthomes.com